We are right in the middle of a new series we're doing. So uh, we finished up a series called Conversations right at Easter, and we're jumping into a really short little four-week series here um, that I'm calling Go and Stay. Uh, and basically the reason I'm calling it Go and Stay is because I think that fundamentally um, decisions are very difficult in our lives. Uh, decisions, as we're going to learn later, I'm going to go exactly how many decisions you make a day, and it's absolutely shocking. Um, but before that, decisions just hurt. They're painful. <laughs> we choose wisely uh, not to make as many choices as we can. Uh, we love to make things simple, and we love to have things chosen for us because decisions and actually making a choice comes with consequences, no matter what. And I think at the, in the middle of every decision that we have to make uh, are two words, and they're go and they're stay. And so in any kind of relationship, there's a moment where you need to realize, I need to go or I need to stay. Uh, or any career, I need to go, I need to stay. In our own community, I need, I need to go, I need to stay. Um, th these are the fundamental questions of life. Uh, and I think that scripture has an enormous amount to say about both go and stay. So last week we talked primarily just on an overview of that. This, this week, I want to talk about stay uh, and what that means when you find yourself in a place in life where you have to stay. Where you say, like, no, I'm here, I'm going to put down roots, uh, and how that's good, and it can be very difficult. And then next week, um, we're going to talk about Ruth, and we're going to talk about what it means to go. Um, but this morning, we're going to uh, focus specifically on the story of Jonah, um, which is one of my favorite stories and books in the Bible. Uh, Jonah is actually only four chapters long. It is a super fast read. Um, so if you want to go home and read it, I'd recommend reading it like the CEB version or the message version. Uh, it goes really quickly, uh, but it's packed with stuff. But here's the problem. We have veggie tales this story. Like we, we've, we've, taken, we've taken the heart and soul out of it and we've replaced it with a story about some guy who gets swallowed by a beautiful whale uh, and then gets thrown up on the shore. We are not even going to talk about the whale this morning. We're going to liberate this story away from Jonah and the whale, and we're going to talk about Jonah, this prophet that chose to ignore his own voice uh, and what that means for our own lives as we have to stay. Um, so let me pray, and we'll get in uh, to what we're doing. God, thank you so much um, just for, for this morning, um, for the ability to talk about uh, what it means to stay what it means when you place us in situations in our life uh, for better or for, uh, for our own um, benefit, that we have to stay, that we have to say, no, this is my, this is my time here. Um, and I just pray over, uh, over all of that, because I know that there are people in this room um, that are in that stay mode, and there are people in this room that are in that go mode, but God, um, I just pray specifically over what it means to be grounded, what it means to be learning from what's around us. Amen. Um, so in this series, every week, we're going to visit this verse again, because uh, this is what kind of drives the whole go and stay. Last week, we talked about discernment, what it means to actually really not just make a decision, but think about that decision, process that decision, and take that decision to God. And here's the verse we're using. Jeremiah is chock full of beautiful little compass moments, because uh, really in the book of Jeremiah, we're following a guy who doesn't really have it all together. In the very beginning of the book, he tells God, like, I can't do this. I'm too young. I don't have a voice. And God's like, no, no, no. And he strips that all away. And he says, like, you need to rely more on me than you're relying on yourself. Uh, and this verse in particular, I think, is just chock full of wisdom. So here it is. This is Jeremiah 6, 16. Uh, and it says this. And I think this is at the heart of discernment. And every decision that we should make, we should put this as like a litmus test up against it. So it says, this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. 
Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. So here's the deal. What we're called to do when we make a choice, when we have to choose to either stay or to go, we need to use this process that God has outlined for us. So basically what it means is look at the crossroads. This is the choice. Every choice is a crossroads. We can go one way or the other. So look, stand in it. Actually take it in. See both directions. Look at it from all different angles. And then the next one is to ask for the ancient paths, which is a really fancy biblical way of saying, like, call your mom, <laughs> right? Or call, call that uncle that you go to with advice. Call your mentor. Call the, the people in your lives that have gone through this before and ask, hey, how did you walk down this path when you navigated? That's what we call conventional wisdom. So that's following the path of someone else who's already done this and has done the heavy lifting, and they can give you advice. But the problem is that every single person in here is an individual, and you are the only person that's going to live out your life. And so you're going to come to crossroads, and you're going to call that person in your life you look up to so heavily, and there's going to be a moment where their advice just isn't going to work for you. It's not going to click. Because you've got to walk your own individual path. You've got to own who you are. And in that, there are going to be choices that you have to make or choices that are thrust upon you that you can't really go to the ancient paths for. So here's the biggest thing we'll be talking about this morning. It's all going to come down to this. You have to use alternative wisdom, not just conventional wisdom. So you have to not just call that person and rely on someone else's advice, but you have to ask yourself what's good. I think at the heart of all anxiety, worry, fear, stress, all of that is because oftentimes in life we lose sight of what's good. <laughs> and what's good for you as an individual is going to look different than what's good for another individual. And that's okay. That's a great thing. We need personalities owning what's good for them because that's what makes the larger picture better, right? We need you to live out your voice, your vocation, your calling, because that's going to make the whole world a better place. Your voice is what the whole world wants to hear more of. They don't want to hear you mimicking another voice, and we do that all too often. So the way that we can find our voice, the way we can find our path, is to ask ourselves and ask God, what's really good? What does really good look like? Not just okay, not just someone else's good, but what's my good truly, truly look like? And then here's the scary part. Then after we've, we've sort of discerned what's good, and that changes, that's not always the same thing, but after we've discerned what's good, then the scary part is, then we have to walk in it. <laughs> so, so often, I think in choices and decision-making, we get stuck at one of these steps and not all of these steps. But they all play off of each other and they need each other, just like we need each other. If you discern and you think and you're asking, you've got what's good and you never walk, we're never gonna hear your voice. And if you're just walking and you're not discerning, you're going to be going around in circles, right? It needs that whole process to actually find what's good and then walk in it. And what we're going to learn about Jonah is Jonah is someone who neither discerned what was good. He found out what he thought was good, what his tradition told him was good. Uh, but he refused to listen what God was truly trying to put on his heart and say, no, 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 this is good. Things like redemption, things like changing people's hearts, that's good stuff. And Jonah was just too like, stubborn in his own ways to kind of do that. Um, 
I think what's good is such an interesting question, and Jesus in the scripture always sort of navigates this in a funny way. What's good for Jesus is often not what's good for the people that are standing around him. I don't mean like it's harmful. What I mean is most of the time they're looking at him going like, what are you thinking, man? Like this isn't what a rabbi does. This isn't what a religious teacher does. Like that's not what's good. But Jesus always keeps like kind of changing people's minds and going like, no, what I think is good is not necessarily going to line up with the books you've read, with the mentors you've had, with the other teachers you've had, sometimes it changes and sometimes it looks radically different. At the height of Jesus' ministry, when this guy was just packing the house, thousands of people were showing up to see him. This is the beginning of the book of Mark. It says he's just wildly successful. He's healing people. People are coming out from the woodwork to see him. This is the moment, right? This is the megachurch pastor moment where the guy says, we start a second campus right down the street. What Jesus does is looks at all of his disciples and says, let's go to the other side of the lake. This is, this is alternative wisdom. This is not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to build. You're supposed to build a structure. You're supposed to like get this momentum, keep it going. What he says is like, no, 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 I think we're good here. Let's go to the other side of the lake. He says to go when his disciples are like, no, 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 we should really be in the stay mode. This is working out really well. You see these numbers? This is going awesome. And Christ is like, no, 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 no. we got to go to the other side. And then, in a moment where he really should have gone, there's this guy in the scripture, uh, again, Veggie tailed it, but um, his name is Zacchaeus, and we only know him because he's a little man, right? But actually, Zacchaeus is sort of like a very frightening figure, uh, figure in scripture. He's a tax collector, and not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector, which means he's like one of the worst people in society at that point. I mean, one of the worst. He would betray his own people, his own family, his own brothers and sisters, and he would take more money, and then he would empower other people to betray and take more money, and he would create this impoverished system uh, that all of these Jewish people were living in in that day. He was sort of the figurehead. If anyone could point to something and say, what's wrong in our society right now, they would point to Zacchaeus and say, that little dude is what's wrong with everything here. <laughs> uh, but Zacchaeus climbs this little tree, and Jesus finds him, and instead of fleeing that situation, and Jesus going like, I'm gonna avoid the chief tax collector, Jesus invites himself over for dinner and chooses to stay because that's what's good. Good is often doing the uncomfortable thing, putting ourselves out there, making crazy decisions, doing stuff that doesn't seem conventionally wise at the time, but on an alternative path, it's the best choice. And guys, we can only get that by looking at that, that script. Sorry, can we get that 616 right back up there? Sorry. Brianna, I skipped right past you. Awesome. Um, we can only get that by asking God what that is. When we're trying to drive our own train or bus or whatever metaphor you want to use, we're going to be found in, in, at crossroads, and those decisions are going to tear us apart because we haven't been doing the process of really asking what's good, asking God, God, what looks good right now. And the problem is we, we kind of hum along in life. When you're in stay, it's very easy to believe you're in stuck. <laughs> stay is not stuck. Stuck is when you're living your life on autopilot. Uh, and I did some really fascinating research on autopilot um, this week. I found this study that Oxford did, uh, which means it's a British study and they only interviewed British people. So you gotta recognize uh, it's gonna be very cynical. But anyway, um, <laughs> it's, it was a British study and it, uh, it said that autopilot is actually a real deal thing. Um, so you live your life, and they call it um, unconscious cognitive activity. So what that means is when you're on autopilot, it's, it's, it's that moment where you're, uh, you're on your morning commute, 
and you really don't remember making any of the choices to like go to the left lane or the right lane and then you just find yourself at work and you can almost ask yourself, how did I get here, right? Like I just drove, but the commute is so mundane and the task is so mundane that we kind of click into cognitive unawareness and just go like, I'm gonna let the brain take over here so that I can think about other things like podcasts or music or whatever and we're focusing, we're on our phones, all that kind of stuff. We're able to do that because our brains are really, really powerful machines. Right, have you ever had too much open on your uh, computer and it sounds like your computer is like gonna explode or it's sweating or something? Like it, the wheels are turning and it's because it's over-processing. So the fascinating part of this story is that we make 35,000 decisions a day. 35,000 decisions a day. And those are just tiny ones and those are big ones, but if you add it all up, it's 35,000. This wasn't in the study, but I looked it up just to see. <laughs> I wondered how many times we take a breath in a day and it turns out that you breathe 23,040 times. You're making more decisions than you are breathing. And so our brains and our bodies have to create these sort of ways to like stop the thing from overloading because if not, we would snap, right? And so we have this, this autopilot thing, but the, the problem is we've, we as a culture, especially in Western culture, have learned to rely on it like way too heavily. Uh, the study called it an epidemic. It said 96% of people have, admitting, have admitted to making a bad decision while on autopilot mode. Um, here are some of the mistakes. 47%, and remember, <laughs> these are British people. They're going to make a lot of mistakes. 47% um, saying yes when you should have said no. 25% said uh, in autopilot they had said yes to a social event that they knew they were never going to go to. How many of us have done that? <laughs> uh, and then you're twice as likely to say yes to extra hours at work to your boss if you are in autopilot mode. The whole point here is that when we live our lives in autopilot, you're not living yourself. You are not your best self. In fact, you're not really yourself. Right? And a lot of our lives, especially when we're in this stay thing and we're not, go is hard. We're going to talk about that next week. But go is more of like, it has a certain like, like fun, crazy, kind of like cool vibe to it because you're going on to brand new things. It's, it's super easy to sort of mark a graduation in that or mark a season in that and say like, oh yeah, that's the moment I started that new job. Or that's the moment we moved states. Or that's the moment here. And you can look back in your life and you can see those markers. But the problem is, a lot of us are called to stay, and when you're called to stay, it's extremely difficult to see those markers, to see those graduations. But they're still happening all around you. You are growing in stay as much as you can grow and go. And in fact, I think you need to be in stay to actually grow and find your voice and find who you are. Your soul needs roots to grow. If you're always moving on to the next thing, you're never going to be able to take the time to actually grow into God, what God wants to do with you, to your own voice. You're just not yourself when it comes to go and when it comes to autopilot. And the really shocking takeaway from this British study is that they said that 38%, only 38% of the people who took this study said that they were living a quote-unquote full life. Meaning, and when they defined full life, it was stuff like uh, are not stressed, anxious, worried, are living a fulfilled existence, can sleep at night, <laughs> all those things. Only 38% of people said that they were living a full life. In Christianity, we would call that full life an abundant life, right? This is First John. Uh, it says, um, I'm sorry, we're going to skip forward. I have come that they may have life and live it to the full. John 10, 10. 
But Jesus is basically saying, I've come so that they can figure out what's good. That they can have a full life, an abundant life, a meaningful life. And the saddest part about our culture is that only 38% of people are saying that they're doing that. That leaves a whole 62% of people who are living not a full life, but a less than life. A less than life. A life that really, they're not leaning into their own voice, into their own vocation, but they're leading some other life on autopilot. 62%. And in crude terms, and we didn't take an official poll here, but that means like 62% of us are feeling that way right now too. And so it's really, really important to recognize that your full life doesn't need go, 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 and new markers and new experiences and new everything. No, your full life can be right here. It can be in stay. It can be right where you are standing. But the problem is we, we, we so often compare our lives to others. And so a full life, if you're looking at that on a social media feed, looks a whole lot different than what Jesus is talking about when he talks about like an abundant or full life. How many times have you scrolled through your social media feed, whatever social media you're doing, uh, and if you get to the end of it and there's no more new content, how often do you feel like you want to give yourself a pat on the back, <laughs> right? Like, congratulations, you did it. No, most of the time, if you're doing that and you get to the end, you kind of ask yourself the question, what am I doing here? <laughs> how did I get here? Where did where'd that 15 minutes go? I found myself at the end of comparing myself to other people. And... Honestly, all social media is, is a comparison machine. When we hop on it, we are naturally just going like, oh, that's a sweet shirt. Oh, that's a really nice vacation. Oh, it looks like they had their baby. Oh, it looks like this, looks like that. Oh, they got that job. Oh, I really wanted that job. Like we're, we're constantly comparing and then we love to just go ahead and insert a shiny picture of ourselves to assure the world that we're doing just as well, <laughs> right? When most of the time we're just filled with ugh after looking at that. There's this parable um, that uh, this Irish philosopher that I uh, listen to sometimes, Pete Rollins, uh, came up with, and I think it's fascinating. He, he talked about if an alien uh, came down to Earth, like this is, a, this is a sentient being, it's like a smart being, and it's coming and it wants to learn the culture, uh, it would come to someone and it would say, like, oh, can you tell me, what can you tell me about your people? What can you tell me about, like, Earth and life and all that kind of stuff? And the quickest thing that we could do to explain what life is is we could pull out our phone and we could say, well, I mean, uh, here's the internet, so here's, here's the Eiffel Tower, here's this. And then eventually you'd get to your, uh, your social media because they'd be like, do you have families here and stuff? And they would pull out their social media and they would show these pictures of people. Uh, and the, the alien would begin to sort of recognize that, oh, people are happy here. They're really happy because every single picture I've seen, every picture you show me, people are smiling. Like, what's this place right here? I've got to go to here. It looks incredible. And the guy goes, oh, that's my office Christmas party, and everyone hates each other there. <laughs> but the, the alien's like, but everyone's smiling. Why is everyone smiling? A lot of our life is just pretending like it's all good. But I think the beauty of stay, rather than go, because go makes it so easy for us to just put that stuff behind us and not compare. We can, we can ditch comparison for a little while because we feel like we're living our own truth. But in stay... You have to own your own roots. You have to find your own voice. You have to actually like be yourself. If you hope to live an abundant life, a full life, you take one line from this whole sermon, this is it. If you hope to live an abundant life, you have to live an authentic life. And way too often, we are living the lives of someone else. Even if it's a hero, we're comparing ourselves to that journey. They hit this marker at this age. I need to hit this marker at this age. But that's not true. 
You have your own story, and you are living into it. Every interaction Jesus has with people is different. He doesn't tell them to all do the same thing. He's letting them live their lives and their truth, and he's healing them in the process. The goal of God is not for you to model someone else's life. It's to live out your own truth. And if we're supposed to be modeling anyone, it's Jesus, and that bar is incredibly high. <laughs> right? So we need to stop like, comparing our lives and actually find our own voice. And the story of Jonah, which we're going to get to right now, is all about that. It's all about a person who has a strong voice. So it's fascinating, a little history here. The book of Jonah um, is one of the only books in the Bible that's written about a prophet. Normally, when you see a prophet show up, and a prophet, and this is really important, a prophet is not always someone who predicts the future. <laughs> so when we think of prophets and we think of these people in the Bible, these, usually these kind of wild men who show up, uh, and they've got an apocalyptic vision, and they want to show you what the end of the world looks like, or they're, they're telling you to repent, and they're showing you a future picture. But actually, most of the work of a prophet, of a true prophet, uh, is to kind of point out what's going on in the room right now. To say, like, hey, uh, this is really weird, what's going on right here in the present, uh, and I think God has a different vision for that, and I want to show you what that looks like. So it's not always what's going to happen. It's more like what is happening. And so in our modern day, prophets may enter your life in forms of friendships or mentorships and everything like that. And it's not always about ushering you towards what you're going to do at the tail end of things. It's about someone who can speak into your life right here and right now and tell you, hey, let me, let me help you out with right where you are right this second. And so Jonah is this prophet. Uh, but this book is not about Jonah's prophecy. In fact, Jonah's prophecy in this book is only five Hebrew words. It's one line in our scripture. It's the shortest sermon ever, and it's incredibly successful. <laughs> and the real weird part of the story is Jonah hates that it's successful. And he's, he's just, Jonah is a cranky, cranky individual. He's a, he's a really terrible person. And we, we've sort of fairy-tailed him and made him into this hero thing. If you really read this book, he never gets it. <laughs> and at the end, you're still kind of like that. He's such a jerk. Like, he's just not a good guy, and he's not a good example of a prophet. And yet, it's clearly named right in the beginning that Jonah is a prophet, that this is someone God has chosen to be a mouthpiece for what he's doing in the world, and this is a person who just who looks completely opposite from what we would think is going to happen. So the fascinating part about the book of Jonah is that it's not about Jonah's prophecy. It's about the prophet. It's about the person who's going to bring the message, and there's no other story in Scripture like that. We, we have a clear picture into what it looks like to struggle with, you've been given this voice, you've been given this talent, you've been given this gift, and you have to use it, Jonah. You have to actually go out and use it. I know a lot of us who have incredible, crazy gifts, and we're not leaning into those far enough. And God's just edging us on, like, come on, I gave you this voice. I want you to use it. And so in Jonah, we see a perfect example of someone who has incredible power. That five-word sermon changes tons of lives. It causes this great nation, Nineveh, who they just hated. These are the Assyrians. These are people that have attacked them 
generation and generation over and have probably murdered their family members. And so when Jonah is coming into this, he's going like, no, these are terrible people, but fine. I'll do your five word sermon. He really phones it in. And then the people are like, wow, okay, let's change everything. And then he goes, yeah, God, I knew you were nice and everything and I hate you for that. So it's a really weird book. Um, but here's how it starts, and here's what I want to focus on. We're not going to get to the fish. I think the fish is a waste of time. But I will go one thing on the fish because it's really nerdy and it's really fun. Uh, there's something called cosmic geography. <laughs> and cosmic geography is the view of the world uh, that these ancient people had, which basically means they didn't look at the world like it was round. We know that much. Um, it was flat, and there was an end to it. And the world fell off, and it was surrounded by water. So what they believed was that there were these pillars that the gods had placed that would hold up the earth. And those were mountains. It might, like, if you've ever heard the expression pillars of the earth, it's what was holding on that whole island. That's what was holding up. And so if you had an earthquake or a tremor or a flood or something, some angry god was down there with a hammer smacking on these pillars uh, to shake you up, to say you've done something wrong. Uh, and so th this is the view of the world. And outside, if you looked up because the sky was blue, what was up there? more water. So they believed they were in this dome, and the dome would crack if the gods were pleased, and they would let a little bit of water down to let your crops grow. And if the gods were not pleased, they would really open that bad boy up, and you'd get yourself a flood. That's what we have in the, the book of Noah. So you have a dome of water. You have water underneath. You have water on the side. Water was the most frightening symbol they could come up with, because it was constantly, like, it was imminent doom. <laughs> it's constantly on their minds. Like, at any moment, we get flooded here, or at any moment they could take it away. Water is one of the scariest things in the whole world. And what's even more fascinating is in that water, they believed that there were these things called chaos monsters. And this is true. Like in this time period, they believed, like in the Loch Ness Monster, like there were monsters in that water. And if you fell into that water, there's a really good chance that you're going to get eaten up by like Godzilla or some sort of chaos monster. So when we think about this fish, not a whale, we should be thinking more along the lines of like a vicious Godzilla-like creature than we should a cute little fish that swallows him whole, right? So, so it, it makes sense. So if Jonah falls out, the logical conclusion in ancient culture is he's going to obviously get swallowed by something. <laughs> Because this wasn't a stretch for them. They were like, oh yeah, they're gonna get swallowed. Like, we're all like, okay, what's the math behind this? What's the science? How did he survive three days in there? I mean, is there oxygen in there? Did he have food? He's writing a poem in there. That's kind of weird. We get <laughs> tripped up on the wrong things. The whole point is, in this society, you had poetry to explain the world because you could not explain the world any other way. You had images, you had story, because you didn't have things like science or microscopes or telescopes or anything like that to give you a more clear picture of the world. You had to rely on what the heart was saying. And so they would use grand, crazy images. When scholars look at the book of the Jonah, book of the Jonah? <laughs> when scholars look at the book of Jonah, they consider it satire. Satire, meaning Jonah was probably a real person but satire is where you put a real person or a real character in a ridiculous situation, right? If you look at anything on like SNL or anything like that, if they're spoofing a celebrity or anyone like that, they're putting this person that we know a little bit about and they're putting them in an absolutely ridiculous situation. So when scholars look at Jonah, they say, well, Jonah is probably real. Jesus talks about Jonah later on and there's some other historical, there's first Kings and stuff in there where they actually mention Jonah as a prophet by name. What they're doing here is they're trying to tell a ridiculous story to shock you into a new understanding of the world. They're trying to tell a ridiculous story that's going to shock you into a new understanding, a new reality of what's going on. 
Because see, when the, when the Hebrew people were hearing this story, it would have been passed down orally. It would have been, been spoken to them. And they would have heard this story, and they'd be like, oh, gosh, that Jonah, what a, what a character, what a crazy crank, what a weirdo. And then by the time they get to the end, most of the rabbis would flip it on his head, and they would say, and you are just like Jonah. You, O Israel, your whole nation, you're just like Jonah. And by the end, they'd be starting to get the point. Jonah 4 rolls around, and they're like, oh, oh that looks pretty familiar to our our history, our nation's history. Oh my gosh, that's another similarity. Oh, maybe God's talking about us. Right? So when we look at the book of Jonah, we're not just supposed to look at this cranky prophet. We're supposed to kind of place ourselves in his shoes. Uh, and here's how this, this book um, ends up, and we'll get into some fun, nerdy details in here. Um, uh, sorry, can we go uh, back to the first slide there in that thing, Brian? Is that the first one? <laughs> uh, they're out of order then. Um, uh, let me tell you the story of Jonah. So uh, Jonah, um, J- right from the beginning, uh, we get a message from God. God says, I, go you, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach to Nineveh. They need to turn around. They need to repent. They need to change their minds uh, because they're living in evil ways, and I don't want to destroy them. Right? We have a very angry version of God in this story. Uh, and Jonah, and this is important, right from the beginning, Jonah's belief is in that angry God. He wants that angry God. If there's one thing that's clear in the whole story is that he much prefers a version of God that's an angry crank like himself than he does a loving, inclusive God that actually wants to change people's hearts. So uh, Jonah gets this message from God, and it says, I want you to change their hearts. And he's like, no way, man. I'm not doing that. Those people have hurt me. This can't possibly be from God. You don't operate like that. You're for our people and you're going to send me to a group of people that has inflicted so much pain on us. Now, I want to break this down just to a base level because it's really fascinating here. Don't think of this in grand terms in terms of someone who's literally harmed your family or perhaps killed your ancestors. Think of this as that person you know that you cannot stand, that for some reason keeps getting those promotions or keeps getting that car you wanted or keeps getting that thing. And you realize, you're like, that's a terrible person why are such good things happening to them? This is what Jonah is going through in this moment. He's saying, God, no, they don't deserve this stuff. They're awful. I'm not going to go do that. And so he does, it's fascinating, he heads west. We talked a little bit about direction last week, but east in the ancient culture was north. Every map you would look up was eastern oriented. So east is God's way forward. Jonah decides to go backwards, and he goes west. And in fact, he goes as far west as you could. So remember what I talked about? There's a shelf, there's an end of the world. He goes to Tarshish, which is our version of Timbuktu. It's literally at the end of the world where the map would drop off. He's going to go as far as he can in the other direction so that he does not have to deliver this message to them. And so he gets on a boat and says he pays his fare which means he's like, he's, he's, he's buckled up. I'm, I'm paying for this. I'm getting out of town. I'm using my own means, my own money, my power to go in the other direction. And he goes in the other direction, uh, and then this huge storm kicks up. I mean, bad storm. We were talking like the perfect storm, Mark Wahlberg, bad storm. And, and it starts rocking the boat. And so remember, we have a guy going off in another direction, choosing to ignore his own voice, saying, no, God, I will not use my voice for that. I will use my voice in the way that I choose. And so what's good for me is in Tarshish. What's good for you is over there, and I'm headed this way. 
And so he goes and he heads that way and this, this huge ship is ignoring his voice, starts rocking, and he just casually, very casually, and it's a really weird sort of juxtaposition because there's a story later in the Bible of Jesus also sleeping in the bottom of a ship. Uh, but this story has Jonah just casually sleeping. He's going to take a nap, <laughs> right? Like the storm is hitting, and Jonah knows. Like, I mean, all the rules of what God works like, if you're headed in the wrong direction, God's going to send something to wipe you out, punish you, do something. But Jonah chooses to believe, no, I'm going to beat the system. I'm going to go take a nap. <laughs> so he goes in, and he falls asleep. And he falls asleep, and is that what the, yeah, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Now, what we should be more concerned about here, even more than the fish or the whale, is that the ship is threatening people. It's sentient, it's alive, and that's a really weird Bible fact. Anyway, it's threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw cargo uh, to lighten the ship. So basically, where we pick up here is that every one of these sailors represents a different nation. We have Jonah representing the nation of Israel, and then we have all these sailors from all over. If they're praying to different gods, that means they're from different tribes, from different families, from all this stuff. So it's this group that's come together for a common purpose, but none of them know this God of Israel. None of them know this Jonah prophet. All of them are praying to their own gods because they would have had their own God. Each family and tribe did. So they're praying to their own gods, and it's not working. And so they're lightening the load. They're throwing cargo overboard. Uh, but Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Now, let's just stop right there. Jonah's ignoring his voice. And here's the really key takeaway for us today. When you ignore your own voice, look who's perishing. Look who's in torment. Look who's suffering. It's not Jonah. It's the people around him. When Jonah refuses to use what God has given him, the people around him begin to suffer. And that is exactly the same with your life. If you refuse to use your life, if you refuse to use your voice, you're not just hurting yourself. Other people are losing out. They're losing out on your voice. Uh, so he says, um, call on your God. And that's very important. And the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. So Jonah knows, but he's just going to hang out. He's like, maybe the dice will fall on someone else and we'll get through this. Uh, they cast lots and the lots fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? <laughs> that's, the, that's like the party question. So what do you do? Anyway, uh, what kind of work do you do? Um, where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Lots of questions. And he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of the heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So if you're on a boat and it's rocking and there's a crazy storm and you're all going to die and then this guy casually drops, oh, by the way, my God, my God's in charge of the sea. <laughs> They're going to go, what are you doing here? So uh, sea and dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them. I don't remember when he did that, but... Apparently, that was already said. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? This is what's fascinating about this story. They put the ball in Jonah's court. It's not the people that don't know God that want to tear him apart or throw him overboard. That's Jonah's decision. They took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So now the people who didn't know God, Jonah never prays to God. Now these people who didn't know God and they're on this ship are now praying to the God. In this story, it's always the people that don't know God that get it. <laughs> it's the person that thinks he's got God all figured out and has got God in his back pocket 
that misses everything here. And then Jonah uses his voice and the famous whale comes and everything and then the, the, the Ninevites actually change their ways. But the problem is Jonah refused to stay where God had him. He remained stuck. He thought, I'm stuck here. I'm bitter. You're using me in the wrong way. And I guarantee you, everyone in this room has said that at some point. I'm not being used in the right way. My gifts are not, I shouldn't be in this job. I should be doing something else, or I shouldn't be in this point in my life. I'm not being used the way that I think I should be used. And the whole point of this story is God saying, hey, if you choose to stay and you choose to actually listen to me, you might learn more about me than you ever believed was possible. You might believe that I actually have a bigger heart than you ever thought was possible. You might actually get to know more of me, and as a result, you might actually get to know more of yourself. And that's really scary, because staying requires us to actually use our own voice, and when we use our own voice, not someone else's, we're incredibly vulnerable. We can get hurt, because what if people don't, don't like my voice? In fact, what if people are offended by my voice? What if I lose friends over my voice? What if I offend a family member with my voice? The whole point is those storms are going to come whether you choose to lean into your voice or not. You're going to encounter rough times, rough seas. But the coolest part about a storm, if the story teaches us anything, is that we encounter a storm in life, we encounter something terrible that's going on. It is an excellent chance to throw whatever is keeping us back from using our voice overboard. To throw whatever is holding us back from truly being who we are out the boat and embrace a new, beautiful reality. Let's pray together. God, I'm, uh, I'm so thankful for the story of, um, of Jonah, of, uh, of how you use us if we, if we only lean into that and if we can choose to listen to you, if we can ask what's good. And so I pray over the people in this room, Lord. I pray over uh, the week that's ahead, just seven days. Uh, may you... Um, May you teach them what they need to know at those crossroads. Amen.